Hello, everyone. Uh, I am uh, Claudio Murgan, the host of the Spiritual Inspire show, and my uh, guest today is uh, Carlos uh, Tanner. Carlos is from the United States and has degrees in both art and philosophy. He moved to Iquitos, Peru in 2004 and lived with his first teacher for four years before creating the Ayahuasca Foundation in 2008. In 2013, he stepped back from the leading the programs to dedicate more time to the administration of the retreats and courses and to raise his daughter. Recently, he has become a voice for the ayahuasca movement and works to spread awareness about the healing potential of plant medicine. The Ayahuasca Foundation is a founding member of the Psychedelic Medicine Association. Carlos, thank you for joining me today. Oh, thanks for having me. Uh, you live in a beautiful place and also you have an interesting um, story. So let's start with um, the healing heroin addiction, which you, you, you battle and you use plant medicine to, to cure it. That's right. I mean, I honestly, uh, I didn't really come to a realization that I had a drug addiction until I woke up underwater in my car, you know, had blacked out behind the wheel and driven into a river. That was my big wake up moment. And that occurred in May of 2003. That same month, I went to Iquitos and, um, you know, for the first time and, and attended ayahuasca ceremonies. And the healing of that was uh, absolutely fascinating. I mean, there were uh, some tough moments, but um, but it was really much more fascinating than anything else. I mean, even in the, the like horrendous trials and tribulations of that first ceremony, I was still fascinated by the experience. And, um, and I think that's like kind of a, a big part of the magic of ayahuasca is that even when you are going through something really terrible or, you know, very unpleasant, uh, there is still a level of fascination. And, and to me, that level of fascination in terms of consciousness is, a, is an optimal uh, state of mind to have transformation take place. And did you intend to go for um, an ayahuasca ceremony before the event you just mentioned or that trigger it? Uh, well, it was a, a set of synchronicities. So I had become interested in ayahuasca because I was um, able to study plant medicine and, um, and that was like a, another synchronicity. I happened to get a job through a temp agency that put me in an office with an internet connection in 2000, which wasn't that common. And, um, and in 1999, I should say. And, and that uh, I didn't have much work to do, though. The temp job, to be honest, was insignificant. Like it was it, it, irrelevant. Uh, but I, there I was. So I had like eight hours to sit in an office with an internet connection and find something to do. So I chose the project of studying plant medicines and I created a database that I kept in a file cabinet at my house and I would use the office printer to print out the information that I was finding about various plant medicines. And ayahuasca definitely piqued my interest because even though there wasn't a lot written about it back then, what was written about it was just incredible. I mean, it was like mind boggling. And, um, and so that like kind of put it on my list of, of, priorities of interest. And, and so I did drink ayahuasca in Massachusetts, where I'm from, and I was working at the University of Massachusetts through that temp agency. And, but it was with someone who claimed to be a minister of the Santo Daime. And, um, you know, I looking back, like, it, it's hard for me to even say that that was an ayahuasca ceremony. I, it was kind of maybe more like a fraudulent uh, activity, but I did think that we did drink ayahuasca. Um, that was my first uh, literal experience, but but going down to the Amazon was was my first like true experience. And it was through that temp agency that I met the secretary at the office who was Peruvian, and she invited me to go with her in 2000 to Peru. So I visited Peru for the first time through that synchronicity, and and I saw that I could drink ayahuasca but I didn't think it was authentic then and either. And I kind of vowed and I wrote in my journal during that trip that I would come back one day, but go to the Amazon rainforest. Cause I didn't go to Iquitos on that first trip. I was like a tourist that went to Machu Picchu. And, um, and then coming back, 
I got a career job almost immediately upon my return. Uh, and, and that was the synchronicity that led to my drug addiction because the career job basically made myself stagnant in the movement of my life. I kept just going to that same job and I, I was aware that I wasn't moving forward on a path anymore. But because of the conditioning about what a career means, I accepted that as the inevitability of what it means to become an adult and, and have a career is that you have to say goodbye to the path that you followed as a youth and or a young person. And, and so that like contributed heavily to the drug addiction because it was a way for me to dull the senses of knowing that I was abandoning the path that had brought me so much satisfaction when I was younger in favor of economic security and the things that we've been conditioned to believe were necessary elements of growing old and becoming a mature adult. And, and then that led me to drive my car into a river and black out. And then the synchronicity happened to be that a friend of mine was in Iquitos at that time and decided to write to me because she had ran into two people that knew a Corandero and she was thinking about about drinking ayahuasca she remembered that i had been talking about ayahuasca back in the 1990s you know 1999 at that job and thought of me and so she wrote me an email out of the blue not knowing that i had just nearly died and i took that as a sign an omen that this was the path that would save me and i think that's also a really important detail because when i flew down to peru i wasn't going to try ayahuasca I was going to save my life with ayahuasca. That was a belief that I had already developed. And, and the reason I developed that belief was because of the nature of the synchronicity. I, once I had that near-death experience and, and you know, jumped out of my car and swam to the shore, I made a declaration to the universe or to God that I would do something drastic and, 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 and make a big change in my life for the, to save my life. And, um, and then a few days later, I get an email from someone who's in Iquitos, Peru, in the Amazon rainforest, suggesting I fly down and drink ayahuasca. It just seemed too uh, crazy of a coincidence. And so I, I didn't view it as a coincidence. I did view it as the response of the universe to my declaration. And I felt that I had no choice but to follow it through. And, um, and so when I got off the plane and in Peru, it was with a much stronger belief that this, this event in my life was going to provide a massive transformation. And it did. Yeah, it was a wise decision because, you know, as you said, God and the universe gives us a lot of signs when we are not following the path of our heart and our soul. And um, either we want these harsh lessons to, to be told to us or shown to us, it's a different story, but we have to acknowledge them. And this is what you did. You acknowledge that you have to do something else, something different uh, than what you've been doing so far. So, and how you combine your, or mix your degrees in art and philosophy with this new path, which is a spiritual path. Well, it was pretty perfect. I, I mean, I feel so blessed that I did have that field of study in my background. Um, philosophy, I think, is quite obvious. I view everything through the lens of consciousness now, and I definitely feel like that was a progression of philosophical thought. I would consider myself a monistic idealist in that sense, and I do feel like that viewing the world and reality through the lens of consciousness in conjunction with working with ayahuasca is, is like kind of a perfect marriage because the more changes you can make within your consciousness, the more changes you can make within your reality because they're so intrinsically connected. Uh, and then with art, you know, art, I feel like uh, helped me to develop my visualization so I, you know, I, I would say that I've always been a very visual person, but I'd also say I was always an artistic person. And so I'm sure that like through my interest in art and development of art, it always like contributed or maintained my ability to visualize. And in ayahuasca ceremonies, visions are often an important component of the experience. And I had very profound visions right from the beginning and 
that I, I do feel like led me to solidify my belief that this was a path for me because my visions were so uh, profound right from the beginning. I felt that it was a contributing factor to me making the determination that I should devote my life to this path. And so then I started a company called the Ayahuasca Foundation, which of course required a uh, website. I had done the website for University of Massachusetts. My degree is in art, but I, because there was no graphic arts program um, when I started, but it developed during my schooling. And again, that was kind of like a blessing synchronicity that Photoshop came out during my sophomore year. And so my junior year, I landed a job where I was paid to create the website for the housing department of the University of Massachusetts. And to do that, I was also paid to learn Photoshop <laughs> and Illustrator and Quark Express and, you know, like essentially create what would then lend itself to my career job as a graphic artist, but also give me the skills to make a website and to understand graphics in a way that would contribute to my business. And staying for a second on the subject of art, all these um, vision, visions you, you had and the, uh, the visualization of your experiences through ayahuasca ceremonies, um, did they materialize in, in any painting or art book or anything like that? So did far. I did, yes, did I create them exactly? Yeah, if you did that, um, no, not directly. I mean, I have commissioned an artist named Anderson DeBernardi, and so I did sketches for him to demonstrate to him the scene of what I wanted him to paint. He's one of my favorite artists and unbelievably talented. He studied under Pablo Amaringo, uh, the first like visionary artist and yes. that painted ayahuasca visions. Um, but no, myself, I mean, I have drawn sketches for myself in my journals, you know, depicting some of my visions in my own notes to myself, but I've never done anything like as a, a piece of art yeah, for someone else to view. Yeah, in fact, I did the interview Howard Chering, who wrote a book on uh, Pablo Amaringo's uh, artwork. It's a very nice book. I, I browse it from time to time. Just unbelievable um, visions and, and paintings and symbolism in, in that book. Right, the book is called Ayahuasca Visions. He yes. co-wrote it with Eduardo, Eduardo yes. Luis Luna. Yeah. And um, yes, I uh, managed to buy a book, uh, that book in Pucallpa at Uscoayar School of Painting where Pablo um, taught and founded that school. And then I had Pablo sign my copy for me when I had the chance to meet and speak with him. And I remember specifically him telling me about his own apprenticeship or rather his own initiation and how it required him to do a six-week diet where he ate nothing but only drank milk. Wow. And so he only drank milk for six weeks while drinking ayahuasca and doing a plant dieta. Wow, interesting. And we'll talk about the dietas a little bit later. But, you know, I had uh, ayahuasca and plant medicine discussion was quite, uh, is quite an important component of my show. And with my previous guests, we talk about how ayahuasca and psychedelics heal trauma, you know, through the amplification of sensory perceptive ability. And I think you went through the same um, experience. So why do you think it's important to, you know, bring more light or shed more light on the uh, benefits of uh, plant medicine in general? Oh, man. I mean, to me, plant medicines, there's a reason why plant medicine sustained the health of humankind for over 100,000 years, um, because nature heals nature. Uh, within nature is a divine motivating principle to heal, which I think is somewhat undeniable. I could say that it's my belief, but uh, if you've ever cut yourself and then watched it heal or ever seen a plant get damaged and then watch it do what it does, or uh, a region, you know, after a forest fire, or, you know, anything like all of nature just proves itself to be a healing motivation, there is, a, you know, something within all of nature to heal to always repair and seek harmony. And that exists in us as well. I think the difference has come in the split of paradigms, you could say, from the ancestral paradigm to the modern paradigm. And I think that that 
is a very damaging um, split, like the, the gap between the current per paradigm of Western culture and the, and the ancestral and indigenous cultures is pronounced and also very detrimental. And so to me, plant medicine is a bridge that can bring us back to the understanding of our ancestral paradigm. And by doing so, regain the understanding that we are a part of nature, that we are a part of the earth, that we are not individuals, but we are a collective similar to the collective of cells that I have in my body and you have in yours, some 50 trillion cells that make you, and they are all individuals, but yet they are all also a collective that works as a collaboration. And we as the planet Earth or beyond that as the galaxy or the universe itself, we are all a collective. And once we can return to that level of thinking, then I think it will almost be inevitable that we will also work towards regaining balance and harmony as a, uh, as a race of people, but also as an environment of the planet and an element of nature. Yes, and we can look at this from a fractal perspective. There is intelligence in the whole, but also that intelligence goes down to the unit, to the the fraction of, of the, the nature of, of, of our own bodies. So if we say that fraction, that the fractal uh, concept will multiply and will bring back the same intelligence. Right. Well, I, I mean, I would say that the universe is an unbelievably intelligent being. The planet is a cell in the body of the universe and we are a cell in the body of the earth and we have cells in our body and all of them have access to the same consciousness and are connected to that consciousness of the whole. Yeah. Um, let's talk about uh, the uh, Noya Rao plant. First time when I um, heard about it was when I interviewed um, someone who lives nearby uh, you in, in Iquitos or in the jungle. And I was told that it's a bioluminescent tree. But let's get a little bit deeper into, into what this plant means for the jungle and for, for humanity and for healing. Sure. I mean, it's a, um, uh, what a fascinating story. And, and Mike and Jamie um, came and did our training course. That's how I met them and that's how they met each other. Uh, they worked as facilitators for the Ayahuasca Foundation for a brief period of time. And that was when they were teamed up. And that was the third marriage, actually, uh, that came from two facilitators meeting at our center and now there will be the fourth marriage uh, as two more facilitators will be getting married perhaps this year we'll see if it if it happens this year or if it's next year but they're engaged um so noira um was always like a mythological plant in the shipibo lore and it really didn't get out of the shipibo culture like no one I would say, had ever really heard about Noya Rao until recently and because it was kind of believed to be a myth. I mean, people talking about a, a tree that glowed in the dark and not only that, but like the legends would be that the, the seeds that fell into the water fish would eat and they would fly or the tree itself could fly. It would like move an entire piece of land with it to a new location. And, you know, these, they were like, fables like these myths these stories but along with those stories was that it, it didn't exist anymore it had gone extinct and um you know as the the literal story goes a man named benjamin mahua was visiting iquitos from the pucalpa area a shipibo corandero and he met someone that gifted him a pipe and he was told that the pipe was made from the wood of a noyarao tree and so he then used that pipe to do plant dietas, to do dietas with the pipe, to essentially diet the tree Noyarao. And he developed what were, would be like considered these um, grand maestro abilities. His connection with Noyarao allowed him to, you know, elevate to a, a, a vibration of spiritual energy that was incomparable. And he shared that pipe with his family members, and they also began to become grand maestros within this one family, the Mahua family. And his daughter, Bilma Mahua, also dieted with this pipe, and she happened to marry uh, another corandero named Enrique Lopez and shared the pipe with her husband. 
But when Enrique guided the pipe, he actually had visions living because he and Vilma were living in Iquitos where the pipe was originally sourced. He had visions of a tree. I don't know if it was the tree, but it was a Neuerau tree. Neuerau is essentially saying, hey, I'm over here. I'm right here, like literally now. And so he sought it out and he found the tree and then managed to buy that piece of land. And that's where we built the school that is called Inkankena, where we hold our eight-week initiation courses, which was the courses that uh, Mike and Jamie, that you were mentioning before, um, did and how they, you know, dieted Neuerau for the first time. And, and, um, and so that was, you know, obviously fascinating that there, here was this tree that it was real, you know, it wasn't a myth and uh, it existed and you could visit it and go see it and diet it. And, um, and that's what we started to do. In fact, we built the school around the tree so that students could come from around the world to diet this tree. And, but then, something very interesting happened where we found another one and then another and then another. And it kind of was starting to coincide with something that Ben Hamin had said. Now, Ben Hamin had never seen the tree. 40 years had passed. He had dieted this pipe, but he'd never seen a tree. And so it was a, you know, a really cool moment when he got to come and, and, and see the tree firsthand for the first time in its physical state. And, Unfortunately, he passed away last year, but um, he said that Neuerau exists all over the world, but it just doesn't look like this. Mm-hmm. And that made me think that Neuerau is not a species of tree. We had some botanists from the Kew Gardens visit, and they felt the same way, that this was not a novel species, that it was some something about that particular tree allowed it to be bioluminescent. And they suggested that it could be some, the dynamics of some uh, relationship between environmental elements that were causing it to be bioluminescent, but that it wasn't actually the species itself. And, And that also, you know, kind of contributed to the development of the idea that I have, which is that the tree has a, a state of attainment and that Neuerau could be likened to the term Buddha, mm-hmm. um, which is not necessarily, you know, it, it's not a, a different type of person. It's not a separate species of human, although it might appear to be that way. Um, if you were to meet Buddha, you might say, wow, you're not like any other person, but but we know it to be a level of attainment and that it's possible for any person in theory to become a Buddha. And, and so that is my perception of what Neue Rao means. And, and I have some interesting thoughts about that as well. And that kind of led into, uh, you know, I let my theoretical like philosophical mind like played it out even further. So my belief is that there was a lot of Neuerau trees. There were a lot of Neuerau trees in the past. And that led to these fables or myths, these stories that were passed down. And even though I don't agree that the tree was flying, and perhaps I don't agree that the, the fish were flying, I think those may have been like uh, exaggerations over time when the, the stories were passed down over generations. I do believe that it was a bioluminescent tree and that it did have... Uh, fantastic powers or the spirit had an elevated uh, spiritual uh, consciousness but that the Spanish came coming and invading the country uh, brought with them this low vibration consciousness that did not uh, view the world the same way that viewed indigenous culture as primitive that sought to dominate the the environment and, and the culture of the people that live there and essentially infected the consciousness of the forest in that region with a lower vibrational consciousness that made it much more challenging for any being, specifically the tree, to maintain the level of consciousness to be enlightened or to have that, that level. And, and so the tree went extinct essentially that no beings could achieve their Buddhahood or their enlightenment in the presence of this lower frequency consciousness that was now invading and dominating the region. And then 
over time uh, a new respect and uh, a new perspective came to be in the state that we are in now where we have hundreds of thousands of people traveling to the Amazon each year to respect indigenous culture, to learn from indigenous culture. We no longer view indigenous as primitive. In fact, we view ourselves as primitive over the indigenous that we now recognize to have wisdom that we lack. And then the same about the rainforest. We don't view it as a source of resources that we can extract anymore. We view it as something that needs to be protected, that needs to be honored, that is an incredibly valuable part of the ecosystem that we are a part of, that the earth needs to have. Uh, and so because of that, we kind of transform that low vibrational consciousness back to a level of consciousness that would allow for enlightened states to be attained again within the beings of the forest, specifically the Neurau trees, that were again able to produce light from within and, and reach a level that would be worthy of calling them Neurau trees. And that's why I feel like we found other trees. And what was very, very interesting was, you know, Don Enrique and Doña Bilma built in Cancana, and then people started dieting Neurau in that place. And to me, their diets and their respect and their level of respect honor and perspective and consciousness then allowed more trees to attain that were close you know but now they were able to attain because the environment itself the region itself don enrique has two brothers don miguel and don rono and they dieted noyarao at that center but then they came to work for me at other two other centers that we have and eventually they made enough money to buy their own land and then build their own houses. And when they bought their own land, they did not have a Neurau tree on their property. But once they built their own houses and started doing their diets there, they found Neurau trees on their property. And so again, that like, to me contributed to the development of this idea. And how I say it played out philosophically was that I believe now that Ayahuasca was used solely as a vine preparation, probably for the entirety of the culture that used it in, in, in the ancestral past. So like maybe tens of thousands of years, the vine was sufficient to provide the connection to the plant medicine because consciousness was at a sufficient level so that the visionary and communication uh, necessary for for, the, for ayahuasca experiences to happen didn't require any dimethyltryptamine additionally, perhaps because humans were already produce, producing sufficient amounts or perhaps because DMT really isn't the best way to understand it. But regardless, I think the vine was used by itself until the Spanish came, at which point the consciousness went down, people's visions started to get darker. And ayahuasca was recognizing this, at which point she said, you guys, you need to go find this other plant now because you're, you don't have sufficient vibrational frequency to stay in touch with me. And, and so this plant adding to the brew will bring it back, back up to a level where you can communicate with me. So I actually now view like the, the source or the inspiration for combining the two plants that make ayahuasca as a, as also a response to a, the the dom the dominating uh, influence of a lower frequency consciousness that came when the spanish conquistadors yeah i mean i completely agree with with you in terms of that the lower frequency can bring down everyone or everything around it um and i, I again i agree that this might have happened in in the amazon uh, as well um, let's talk about the um, Ayahuasca Foundation and how it evolved from 2008 to, to what it is today. Right. Well, the, the inspiration for the Ayahuasca Foundation came from my own study. As you mentioned, like I moved in with my first teacher, Don Juan Tangoa, in 2004 and um, lived with him for four years and essentially was his uh, student or an apprentice. And but it was very like traditional in the sense that he 
basically gave me permission to be in his presence. You know, I, I call him my teacher and I did learn so much, but he never like sat me down the way that my teachers in school had done. You know, there was never a, a, a class. There was never a time where he said, hey, I'm going to teach you something today. Um, it was really just I shadowed him. You know, I followed him. If he went to treat someone, I went with him. If someone came to be treated at his house, I was next to him. I assisted in whatever way I could. If he was making ayahuasca, I was there and I would help him. If he was making a plant remedy, I'd be there and I would help him. Sometimes we'd go for walks together in the jungle looking for specific plants to make plant remedies. I would try to help him. That was pretty pathetic. But, um, you know, I couldn't recognize I'd be like, is this it? Is this it? Is this it? Is this it? Um, but, uh, you know, I was just there and, and I took notes. I had a video camera. I filmed, I actually filmed in ceremonies very carefully, you know, respectfully so I could watch what he was doing. Um, I was kind of spying on him and I recorded the ceremonies with mini disc recorders. And I listened to those recordings and watched those videos and, reviewed those notes and and I kept organizing them and deepening my own ability to understand the concepts. And I was essentially creating this collection of materials for myself as I learned more and more. And and one day, about three years in, I I was just looking at all of the materials I had and I was like, wow, man, this is a, a quite a collection of of information. What if someone had just handed this to me when I arrived? and said, here's your materials. You know, this will help you learn this tradition. I would be so far ahead. I'd be so much further than I am now. It took me three years to get to this point. What if I just gave that to someone? And so that gave birth to the idea. What if I did that? I'll, I'll make a course. And I called it the initiation course. And, um, and the first course was with Don Juan. And, but he, he didn't really share the same vision, which is understandable. I wanted to incorporate a model of education that I grew up with, you know, like a westernized educational model. And he wasn't familiar with that educational model. It didn't really resonate with him. And, but I wanted it to. (laughs) And, um, and, and eventually, like, we parted ways, which was really more about me meeting my wife and, uh, you know, wanting to have my own place and, you know, not live as a married man in his house, but to like have my own home. Um, but when I did move out of his house, that, that kind of freed me to speak to other coranderos, which I had never done. I had never drank with another corandero. And, and so I did. Um, which was very interesting because immediately I was like, you do it all wrong. You know, uh, the difference is I was so locked into, you know, the way I had learned. And that was eye opening for sure to see that there was a lot of different ways to do it. But that eventually led me to meet Don Enrique Lopez, who I mentioned earlier. And when I met him, he taught me so much the day I met him. He just was like so open answering all my questions. And he said that his vision for why he moved from Pucallpa to Iquitos was because his path was to teach foreigners the Shipibo tradition. And that's why he came to Iquitos because Pucallpa didn't have tourism. And so he wanted to meet people from all over the world to share his ancestral tradition so that it would spread back into the world. And I was like, that is exactly my vision. And so it was clear right from the beginning, literally from the first day I met him, it was clear that, that we were supposed to work together. And so once I drank ayahuasca with him uh, for the first time, like the next morning I said, let's do this. Like you and me, I, I, we got to make this happen. And, and the ayahuasca foundation was really born that night uh, of that ceremony the next morning when we spoke about it. And everything just fell into place after that. So that was um, 2009, actually. 2008, I had the idea for the Ayahuasca Foundation, which was the birth of the course itself. And I was still living with my first teacher then. But it was 2009 that the Ayahuasca Foundation became like real, um, not just conceptual. And that was because I met Don Enrique and we 
formed that partnership. And 2010, we offered our first initiation course um, together. And that course, uh, I mean, looking back, I'm like embarrassed at what that course was. But at the time, you know, and all the people agreed that attended that course, it was amazing. It was an incredible experience, like nothing. And in fact, I think someone who attended that course said that it was like one year that he had he had been studying for five years and this was like equivalent to one year of his studies that six-week course um but looking back that six-week course was like a joke like it, we you know so tiny amount of material compared to what we've developed now and so each year you know each course essentially we constantly kept finding ways to express the teachings more eloquently so that a deeper understanding could be attained by the people that were receiving the teachings and increase the amount of material. And that led to the point where the six week course couldn't, couldn't handle it all. Like we didn't have enough time to get through all of the material. And that is how it got extended to the eight week course. And most especially like our understanding of the dietas through all of our own personal experiences um, led to like what I feel is a very, very profound articulation of what dietas are and allows for a very deep understanding for people that are being introduced to the concepts right off the bat to be able to have very deep dietas, which is something that I envy of them because I went through so many dietas that I don't have anymore because they were, were so bad you know they were like so poorly done through a lack of right understanding and right practice um and so now like to see people coming in and learning right understanding and practice right, right off the bat uh you know it, it's um, unbelievably fulfilling and satisfying and way beyond what i actually thought was possible when i dreamt up the course in the first place yeah. so it's it's, an, it's been an incredible journey to say the least yeah, beautiful um, so what's the difference between a retreat and a course? What's the, let's say, the end result? What are people achieving at the end of um, each of them? Yeah, I mean, it, it is a statement that expresses intention more than anything because there are very, very similar um, events. You know, they're very, very similar in the sense that we don't hold back on the educational elements during the retreats. We are happy to share um, you know, as much information so that there is as much of an understanding as possible about what the process is. But the people that come to do a course come with the purpose of helping others. You know, they, they feel it's their path. They feel they're called to be a healer. They feel like uh, they already are like on that path, but they just don't understand, you know, what to do. Like they're, they're not really sure like how to proceed. Unfortunately, we don't really have a path like that in modern culture and and that leads them to like do the course and so their intentions from the day they arrive is is to have an understanding and a, and a, a practice that would allow them to heal people in their communities whereas people coming to do the retreats are, are not usually uh, intending to achieve that they're really just struggling with an affliction or health issues and they're hoping to find a reprieve from that, to be cured of their illnesses, which is usually the result of childhood traumas or some type of traumas, whether or not it happened during their childhood or not. Um, and so, you know, the focus is very different in the two, but we teach in, in all of the programs. Um, it's just that you don't get materials in the retreat. Like you're, you're not handed a book that has all of the materials and you're not handed technological devices like a MP3 player with the Igoros to study. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's just to spend time focusing on your own personal healing and the educational elements uh, contribute to that beneficially, but they're not the focus. Whereas the course is kind of in reverse where the focus is all the education, but people also receive tremendous healing through that process. And so in the end, people increase their, their health, they, they, you know, receive tremendous healing across the board, and they learn a lot across the board. But one is the focus 
in the courses and the other is the mm. focus in the retreats. And for those who are taking the, the course, um, are they considered healers, not curanderos or curanderas, correct? Well, I think those words are really just the same in the different language. Um, curar is the word to cure. So a curandero in Spanish is literally one who cures, um, which I think would be also synonymous with healer. Um, but no, I, you know, those are, those are titles. Those are words. Um, they don't really mean much. You know, if you meet someone who calls themselves a healer, I don't feel any different about that. If they can heal a person, I don't care what you call them, you know, uh, the proof is in the pudding or whatever that saying is, um, you know, and so people just come, I, my term is student. Um, like I, I would never call myself a healer. I think it's a little bit weird to call yourself a healer uh, personally, but um, my, I would always call myself a student. And, and one of the things that drew me to the tradition and what I still to this day resonate so much with is that there's no end to the path. So Don Enrique with 40 years of experience, he's a student and he learns, you know, I've worked with him for 11 years. I've known him for 12 years and I've seen how much he has learned. You know, he continues to learn all the time and he'll come and say like, I've been, I learned something new and I want to share it with the next group, you know, um, the plant remedies that he uses and the way that he teaches and, you know, he's constantly learning and it's a great example to see your own teacher as a student uh, to put yourself in the correct perspective to understand that you will always be a student as well. So, um, you know, I don't think that many coranderos refer to themselves as coranderos. Yeah. Uh, other people call them coranderos, yeah. but um, but the reality is that we're we're all people, and you know we do the best that we can to help each other. Yes, but most of the of these plant medicines are forbidden in uh, countries like you know Canada, USA, Australia, and other places. So when these people which received your training go back, what means do they use to to heal? Um, they can. Can they still have a uh, you know clandestine ceremony, or they use other means? Right. Well, I mean, from my perspective, only a handful of plant medicines are prohibited. Um, the vast majority of plant medicines are completely legal. Um, you know, we use about sixty different plants in our programs, and fifty-nine of them are legal. Uh, the one plant medicine that is not legal outside of Peru or in other countries would be ayahuasca. But all of the other plant remedies that we use, all the plant medicines that we use apart from ayahuasca are legal outside of Peru and, and in other countries. Um, thankfully, uh, before and, and still currently, like people make their own decisions. And I think that we've seen that play out in a number of ways. Um, marijuana would be a great example. Marijuana was internationally prohibited. Uh, almost all countries across the world had made that an illegal substance, and yet 80% of the population had been using it. Um, so clearly, like people were making their own decisions about what should and should be and should not be prohibited and acting accordingly. And, um, and so th the same applies to other prohibited substances, especially ones that have proven themselves to be so beneficial to people's lives. And I think that marijuana provided this like um, transformational pathway for the rest of plant medicines that are currently prohibited to follow. And, and we're seeing that play out now, just recently in Massachusetts where I'm from, uh, Somerville, Massachusetts, and Brighton, Massachusetts, decriminalized ayahuasca. Um, ayahuasca has been decriminalized in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Washington, D.C., Sa Santa Cruz, California, Oakland, California, and the entire state of Oregon just decriminalized all drugs and legalized mushroom therapy. So there is certainly a trend in the last year especially, and that is not slowing down. If anything, it is speeding up if we can look at other prohibitions that were transformed or, or reversed, um, it seems like it will only go faster this time, at least within the United States. And the United States does seem to be the leader in for the world 
in determining, you know, their own drug policies. So of course, like not all the countries are just going to immediately follow what the U.S. is doing. But if you look at the legalization of marijuana, um, countries seem to be following suit and, and, you know, allowing CBD. I'm surprised that the U.S. hasn't uh, just legalized recreational use on a federal level yet. But I think it's like 35 states now have uh, recreational marijuana, you know, completely legalized and like something like 47 states out of the 50 have some form of medicinal marijuana allowed in their state. So it's pretty soon, maybe even this year, we'll see like a federal legalization of marijuana, which would then naturally lend itself to a federal legalization of all plant medicines, entheogens, which we are already seeing. Uh, Oregon set a pretty high standard, and I think that we'll probably see other states, probably states like Vermont, um, follow suit with that quickly. And perhaps Massachusetts will uh, vote as a state to decriminalize all plant medicines, including ayahuasca. So that, you know, that trend will now provide an even greater justification for using ayahuasca in countries that are prohibited. They'll set precedents, essentially. And there are churches like SoulQuest in Florida that have, um, like, worked within the the mm-hmm. Depart- Drug Enforcement Administration's own guidelines to to get legal religious rights use, and there are other churches like the ONAC, and so there are some indigenous uh, churches in the United States that use the, their constitutional right of religion to use ayahuasca as a sacrament. So there's there's a lot of work being done, and it's all positive, and it all uh, seems to be headed in the direction that people will be able to decide what they want to do with their own consciousness, which is obviously our own sovereign right, if you ask me. Yeah, and if this trend continues, then we can have DEA dissolved. You know, we don't need them anymore. That's right. <laughs> um, and then it will be a matter of, you know, finding the ethical people, the ethical um, and the, um, the real uh, ones who will be able to hold these ceremonies and do the, the healing for those around us. And as you said, when you first tried in Massachusetts, um, it wasn't kind of a a legit operation. You didn't think that that person knew what he was doing. So this is another aspect of, you know, plant medicine uh, intake and ceremonies. You have to find the the right space, the right person who will do the healing, which will call in the spirits and and do that perfect, um, or at least the... um, the natural healing of your body and your psyche? Well, I mean, the, the prohibition speaks a lot, you know, the, the well, for, first off, like if there's a war on drugs, drugs won the war. So, you know, like that, that was such a useless effort and damaged way more lives than it was supposed to protect um, across the board. But one thing that prohibition did was prevent people from having adequate education and understanding. And, and we still see it. I mean, our, uh, in the United States, the, the drinking age is 21. And I, I have never met a 21 year old that hasn't already been drinking. And, and so what does that mean? That all these people were drinking without proper education. And I'm willing to bet that the alcoholism rates would go down if the prohibition age also went down because people would have adequate understanding about how to properly drink. When it comes to ayahuasca, you know, one of the reasons why I drank ayahuasca with that person was because that was the only person I'd ever heard of offering it. Why? Because it was prohibited. It was illegal. You couldn't just advertise it. And, 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 and there was no way for me to understand it because it was a prohibited substance. So there was no education about it. But if the, if it was completely legal, then you'd be able to see which of these 20 people offering ceremonies in my state do I want to visit? I'll communicate with them. I'll read their reviews. I'll, you know, I will find out all the information the same way I do to decide whether a dentist is good or whether a restaurant is good or whether a mechanic is, 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 should be trusted. All of those should be at play. And the fact that they're not makes it more dangerous for people because they are not able to assess adequately whether or not they are choosing the best path forward yeah you know uh, 
people are very interested in uh, how the integration and lifestyle adjustments um, are being, you know, assimilated. And what are your, you know, lessons over 15 years of studying plant medicine in the Amazonian forest? What can you tell us about that? Right. I mean, integration is obviously the biggest challenge. Um, a lot of times our environment, you know, our, our physical environment, but our, our cultural environment, our emotional environment, our support system or lack thereof is a big contributor to why we go to Peru to do an ayahuasca retreat. And so to have the transformation when you're away from all of those influences that were most likely part of the cause of the affliction um, is kind of easy. You know, it's like, hey, get away from everything that caused problems in your life and then change how you feel. But then you have to go back. And so going back to the same environment where no one else has changed is a real challenge. Um, and maintaining the new response mechanism uh, is, is really like the, what I would call the, the pinpoint of, of the challenge. You know, like essentially ayahuasca allows us to change the way that we respond to our experiences. And, and through the changes of our responses, we change the way we, we interpret our experiences. And by interpreting them differently, we remember them differently. And by remembering them, essentially, we alter our reality because reality is really a memory of our past that we use and put pieces together in the present to predict the future. Um, if we remember our past differently, our reality changes. And then we predict the future differently because we put pieces together in a new novel way in the, in the present. So it all comes down to response. Our ability to respond is our true superpower. It's our true responsibility is our ability to respond. Our responsibility is everything. And so maintaining a new level of responsibility um, when we come back to our old life or the way that life was is something that requires a level of trust in that transformation and support. And where you can get that support and trust is always nature. So my best recommendation is always to incorporate nature as much as possible. Nature will never doubt your experience and nature will, will never uh, reduce the level of trust that you have because you are, you are nature, you know, a tree never has a doubt and, and, you know, being with trees will always maintain your own trust in the transformation that was created through the, the connection to nature. So I'm, I'm a big fan of like encouraging people to incorporate nature more into their lives, to spend more time with nature. And one of the things that we do is we take pictures and we record all the ceremonies during the retreats. And a person afterward um, on the last day gets a USB that has those ceremony recordings and photographs. And that can serve as a great um, benefit if they have a tough day if they're starting to feel doubt creep in, if they're starting to lose trust in, in, in their transformation, they can go back home, put the headphones on, listen to one of the ceremonies where they had a powerful um, epiphany, you could say, and, you know, and, and, and stimulate the reliving of that experience to revive that depth of trust, because it does take a level of training. Um, if you like take a new way to, to work each day uh, then your mind will automatically want to go the way that you used to go until you've retrained it. We have our own neural pathways that dictate how we typically would respond to our experiences previously. And just because you transform that doesn't mean that it's automatically going to be that way. Your brain will still have a hab habitual tendency to go back to those previous neural pathways without your own conscious will acting on it to say, no, 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 we're going this way now. And, and sometimes that's more challenging when you find yourself face to face with the triggers that cause those most extreme responses. So having a, a practice, some sort of discipline, meditation, yoga, sitting in a chair, 
looking at those photographs, singing, um, especially like singing a song that we teach you, um, all of those that if you connect them to the experience, which we would hope that happens naturally because you're doing the practice as a effort to integrate your experiences. So there's a conscious connection between them. Every time you sit to meditate, you're reinforcing the transformation that occurred in the Amazon rainforest. Every time you do yoga, you're reinforcing the transformation that took place in the Amazon rainforest. Every time you sit quietly in a chair for 15 minutes at the end of each day, you're reinforcing your transformation that happened in the Amazon rainforest. Every time you sing a song, you're especially reinforcing your connection to nature that happened as a result of the transformation in the Amazon rainforest. So all of those things are uh, you know, elements that can contribute to the reinforcement of your own knowledge of your transformation. Essentially, that is how I would view it. Like you change your personal truths, the ones that were detrimental and didn't serve you can be replaced by positive truths that benefit you. And it takes some time to uh, let the concrete set for those new foundations on your belief system. But once they're set, then you build a much more beautiful and healthy belief system on top of them. Yeah, any personal change requires uh, work and sometimes more work than, than other people. So you have, yeah, you have to keep working on yourself, changing your beliefs and that change will transformation will, will happen, that's for sure. Um, I know that through the foundation you do research and you keep track of the, the benefits of uh, plant medicine. When do you expect to, to publish uh, any results? That's a great question. I, I host the research. I'm not a doctor. So the, the research is all um, conducted by doctors from the National Health Services of the UK, specifically the British Medical Research Council. And um, they are in charge of all of that. I have seen the, the results of the studies and they are fascinating but when it comes to publishing that's like a whole other world um so i know that they have submitted the results of their phase one trials and that they are being reviewed but the pandemic kind of screwed everything up this year so i'm not really sure like where they're at with that process but we did start the phase two trials and um and so we're you know we're we're continuing to look forward um, the evaluation that we used was modified, which is why we call it the phase two trial to include a, a greater data set. So we'll be looking at uh, chronic pain and PTSD, which were not included in the first trial. And, um, and also looking at a much larger uh, genetic marker set because the original epigenetic studies were only looking at three genetic markers. And I think now it's over 20. And so that will like also provide a lot of interesting insights and we'll retroactively look at those 20 um, with our first trials because we, we still have the saliva samples from all the participants. Yeah, I really hope that they're open-minded and the um, agencies and the, the publication which they intend to, to publish this um, data in uh, will, will do it because usually what happens with positive results if they infringe on you know, pharma uh, industry uh, revenue, they might just drop it, they will bury it, or, you know, I don't want to be sarcastic, but this is what usually happens. Hopefully this, this instance will be different. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to get too conspiratorial, but, um, but yeah, I'm, I'm hoping for the best for sure. I mean, the results are what they are. And there are some publications that are devoted to psychedelics that would publish it. Um, you know, they're not as reputable, you could say, although even the journals that used to be considered reputable have been co-opted by pharmaceutical corporations. And so it's kind of hard to know who to trust anymore with any study that you see. Um, but nonetheless, like the study, I do think will have an impact on legitimizing the treatment. And my real hope is that this study was one of the first of its kind to do a study in its native setting. So while there have been other ayahuasca research studies, they often took a clinical approach. And this was um, an approach that incorporated the ancestral tradition within the study. And I haven't seen a lot of that done. So I'm hoping that will, will be done more and that the traditional 
elements of use will be able to guide uh, the new emerging field of psychedelic therapy because psychedelic therapy within the the current model of medicine in the in the west like modern medical model um is going to be less effective you know the ancestral paradigm respects the the elements of use almost more than the substance of use and and unfortunately the current medical model doesn't seem to recognize that the method of use and the surrounding context of use plays such an important role um but and so i'm i'm really hoping that traditions like the ayahuasca tradition can help to influence Mm -hmm. the new emerging field of psychedelic therapy because it would definitely increase the outcome yeah Carlos, thank you for your work. Uh, we are approaching the end of the interview. Any final thoughts? Oh, um, yeah, nature. It's all about trees. It's all about plants. It's all about animals. We are those things. We are made of those things. And, um, you know, if you haven't looked at a tree with awe in a while, if you have forgotten how incredibly magical clouds and butterflies and insects and animals are, um, you know, I highly encourage us all to remember the childhood perspective that we had when everything was uh, something to behold and marvel. That is still the case. And you cannot explain away the magic of our existence. And it serves us no benefit to do so. So I encourage everyone to uh, revel in the magic that we are as human beings and the blessings that we are experiencing every moment that we are alive and healthy and happy and opening our eyes to visions that are always awe-inspiring. Thank you. And uh, for um, everyone else, so thank you very much for for attending. Thank you for your work. I know you have an upcoming um, summit. I will put the link to um, that uh, that one in the in the description of the video so people can register or visit later on Um, and until uh, so for my viewers thank you for um, watching this interview please share it like it Uh, you know you can support me on um, patreon.com slash claudio murgan you can get a free copy of my book uh, by visiting my website claudiomurgan.com and until next time love and gratitude